Hello and welcome to episode number 89 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and joining me, as always, is Tony Pauline, as we get set to break down week five of the college football season and look ahead to some intriguing week six matchups. Before we get into that, though, we talked about Clemson, North Carolina on last week's show and mentioned that we didn't really expect the game to be close, despite the fact that there were some intriguing on-field matchups. But the Tar Heels ended up being a two-point conversion away from knocking off the nation's number one team. Tony, that result says way more about Clemson than it does UNC, right? I think it says a lot about both teams. I mean, and, and really, North Carolina didn't need that two-point conversion. Uh, they could have kicked the extra point and brought the game in overtime, but Mac Brown wanted to go for the win. And, you know, we've seen this from Clemson in the past, where they've had bumps in the road, whether it be Pittsburgh, whether it be Syracuse, teams that you didn't expect them to have bumps in the road with. Uh, and I think it said a lot about North Carolina's defense because North Carolina's defense really took it to another level against what was or what is expected to be an explosive Clemson uh, offense. But it was an enjoyable game to watch, and there were some really good performances by next-level prospects in that game. Absolutely. And I think a big reason that Mac Brown went for two there is he just didn't want to go to overtime against Clemson. He knew that even with the performance of his defense, that his team overall was overmatched. You kind of saw it a little bit in the second half, the early portions of it. And I think he just wanted that game to end right there and said, you know what? I think we have a 45 to 50% chance of getting this two point conversion and coming out with a win. And he handicapped those odds as being better than what overtime would have given them. Uh, Yeah. I think also, you know, coming off that, what was a really bad loss to Appalachian State the week before. I don't think anybody expected North Carolina to play the way they did. So uh, I'm sure Mac Brown <laughs> really beat the crap out of him uh, during the week of practice and really gave him a good talking to after the Appalachian State loss. And he should be, he should be real proud of him the way they played, uh, played against Clemson on Saturday. For sure. And while Clemson had that close call, there were a couple other ranked teams that did fall. Utah, though, wasn't one of them. 38-13 win over Washington State. The attention-grabbing headline after the game has really been the Mike Leach quote where he called his team, quote, fat, dumb, happy, and entitled. But the real story here on the field was that there was no Zach Moss in the backfield for Utah, and there really was no problem as a result of Moss's absence. Quarterback Tyler Huntley was 21 of 30 for 334 yards, two touchdowns, added two scores on the ground as well. He looked good. Problem with Huntley is he lacks NFL size. He's only 6'1", 205 pounds. His deep accuracy can be a bit inconsistent. Same thing with throws to the sidelines and the boundaries. But overall, good arm strength and velocity. He's a very good athlete and really did a nice job keeping the offense moving and putting up points in this game. Yeah, and you see how much uh, Washington State misses their quarterback, who's now doing an unexpectedly terrific job for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Washington State is a team that's predicated on offense. But, you know, you said no Zach Moss, and – the injuries to Zach Moss, I think, are piling up. They're going to be a problem. Kyle Whittingham said that uh, Moss is expected to return to action in two weeks. So that would be a week from Saturday when uh, Utah takes on Oregon State. But a lot of people feel that Zach Moss is a guy who's going to fit into that second-day range. They like him as a feature runner. The fact that you know, he missed the end of last year with a knee injury that people are still trying to kind of figure out how that knee injury came about fell out of bed, fell out of tub, whatever the heck it was. And now he's got a shoulder injury. And you know, shoulder injuries can be tough. I mean, they can linger. So when if Zach Moss comes back in two weeks, how healthy is he going to be the rest of the season? 
Yeah, and the one thing that tends to translate from college to the NFL, if you were a guy that got hurt and had some injuries and got banged up at the college level, and not necessarily fluky type of injuries, but injuries where they're going to be sustained on a football field, you don't all of a sudden go to the league and become a more durable player. So that's going to be a definite red flag coming out for Moss if he can't get back on the field and stay healthy the rest of the way, and frankly, even if he can especially when you're a skill position guy. I mean, that happens with running backs and receivers, especially sometimes defensive backs as well. But uh, when you're a guy that's going to handle the ball a lot, that's absolutely true. And now looking on the defensive side of the ball, where we're going to find the true star of this game for the Utes, and that was linebacker Francis Bernard. 12 tackles, one of them being a sack, a game-sealing interception with a little over five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. He actually credited some film work after the game, said he knew that the play was coming to him once he saw the alignment and what happened post-snap. As soon as he saw that, he bailed out, made the pick, really ended the game essentially for Utah there. Showed out on the blitz as well with that sack. Also had a couple other pressures. Julian Blackman played pretty well too. Only had two sackles, but both of them came in the red zone. One was stopping a potential touchdown on fourth and goal with about nine minutes left read the dump to the running back, made a great play in the open field to save the touchdown. If Bernard's pick was the play that sealed the game, that tackle was the one that kind of set it up to be a long shot and set Bernard up to be able to make that game-ending play. But in the end, Blackman aside, Bernard was really the star of that game late Saturday night, and he's a guy that we've been high on for a while now. Yeah, and just to repeat, I mean, this is a guy who is not even graded by scouts. We talked about him at the end of the summer in August when we did our Pac-12 preview, uh, I believe second part, Pac-12 preview part two. And it was the athleticism that he showed last year when he was on the field. And he wasn't on the field all that much last year because Utah had three good linebackers, two of who are now in the NFL. But when he was on the field, uh, you could see the playmaking ability. You could see the athleticism. You could see the potential. And like I tell everybody who were surprised by uh, Francis Bernard, go back and watch that Holiday Bowl against uh, Northwestern where he's covering receivers 30, 35 yards down the field. 37 tackles this year, two and a half tackles for loss, two interceptions. You remember early in the season against BYU, he intercepted that pass early in the game, brought it back for a touchdown, really developing into a complete three-down linebacker. I said before a number of times, I think he's this year's version of Sione Takitaki, a guy that no one was talking about before the season. He's going to move up the boards with his play, and I think he's going to end up in the second day of the draft. Now, a ranked team that did lose this past weekend was Cal, falling at home to Arizona State 24-17. The bigger loss, though, for the Golden Bears is quarterback Chase Garbers. The shoulder injury is going to keep him out at the very least this week, and probably beyond. And there's a definite drop-off under center to Devin Modster, the former UCLA signal caller. Tony, anything more on Garber's injury that you know about? Well, yeah. I mean, Justin Wilcox, the head coach of uh, Cal, said earlier this week that uh, Garber's is out indefinitely, out out long-term. He might be able to return before the end of the season, um, but it looks like it's going to be a long injury. Now, last Saturday uh, on the College Football Game Day blog, at Pro Football Network that we do every Saturday from noon till midnight. Guys should check it out because there's a lot of opinion and and analysis as well as breaking news. The story that I broke was people were telling me who were at the game Friday night, they told me Saturday morning, they think that Garbers may have broke his collarbone. Uh, And he was in a sling this week. and, And that all, if it's not a broken collarbone, it's something significant. So I don't know. 
that uh, we're going to be seeing Garbers back anytime soon. It's kind of a shame because he was playing good football. I mean, the game against Arizona State was not that bad. The game against Mississippi in Ole Miss, he was fantastic. Uh, as I've said in the past, he reminds me a lot of Jared Goff, although he's a little bit smaller. I think he's got a great upside. I just hope he gets healthy. And more importantly, I hope they don't rush him back. I hope they put him on the field when he is healthy. Yeah, he was looking good at the start of this game, and it was kind of back and forth at one point, and then Monster came in and just completely changes the complexion of the offense that they can run. So it really was a tough blow for Cal. Another tough blow for Cal was all the rushes that Eno Benjamin was putting out. He had 29 carries in this game, barely covered 100 yards, but he did score three times. And the one thing about Eno Benjamin that you notice when you watch him is he runs hard for a 200-pound back. He can actually move the pile. He breaks tackles, had a couple catches as well, and he is an asset in the passing game as well. And in this one, he was really just the entire Arizona State offense, despite that low yards per carry. But looking across the field on the Cal defense, linebacker Evan Weaver had 15 tackles. And the crazy part is that's not even his season high. The week before against Old Miss, he had 22 tackles. Now, how often do you see 20 tackle games at any level of football, let alone here? In our Pac-12 preview on Weaver, we talked about how he had 158 tackles in 13 games this year, and I kind of joked around saying maybe he'd get more without Jordan Kanoshik around, who also averaged around 10 tackles per game, and lo and behold, he's averaging a whole extra tackle per game this year. Really one of the few Cal defenders who showed he was capable of taking Eno Benjamin down right at the spot of first contact rather than getting extra yardage. Yeah, and, and uh, Benjamin was the kind of back that I thought could give uh, Weaver fits, but we- Weaver was up to the challenge. You know, first on Benjamin, some people uh, like him as a second-day pick. Some people like him as a second-round pick. He's not going to be able to run with that tough, strong style on Sunday that he shows on the college level. I give him credit for it, but it's just not going to work. He's going to have to be able to create yardage, turn the perimeter, which he really has struggled doing this year. As far as Weaver's concerned, he has really improved his game. I, I mean, just a dynamite run stuffer plays intense football, plays smart football, goes sideline to sideline. I I pretty much still think he's going to be a middle-of-day-three guy because when I watch him play, I don't expect him to run any faster than the high four sevens at best uh, during combine or pro-day workouts, maybe low four eights. He just does not look like a real fast guy who can close to the action, which I think people will maybe justifiably pigeonhole him as a two-down run defender, which he is exceptional at. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. And I like the point you made on Benjamin, because when you're 200 pounds, no matter how powerful you are, once you get up against the big boys at the NFL level, it's going to be really tough to play as a bigger back in a smaller back's body. And that's kind of the conundrum on Benjamin. He can have an impact on all three downs, but really need to see what kind of athletic ability he has. And he really needs to show that a little bit more to really improve his stock. Yeah, as well as the pass catching on the backfield, which he does a good job of. I mean, I, I think thus far, granted it's only a month into the season, but I think his 2018 film has been better than what he's played in 2019. I don't think he's really lived up to expectations, but there's still a lot of season left. Now, while it was a big game on the box score for Benjamin and Weaver, it really wasn't that for the secondary trio at Cal. Cornerback Cameron Bynum and safeties Ashton Davis and Jalen Hawkins with Weaver kind of gobbling up all the tackles in the middle of the field. Davis in particular, though, is a guy that's really been getting a ton of hype this year. Tony, what was your biggest takeaway for the Cal secondary from this game? Hasn't gotten a ton of hype from me, that's for sure, because I I thought he was overrated. I said that in my write-up about Cal. I said it when we spoke about him. You know, he's a real good athlete. 
high hurdle champion, as, as you pointed out uh, when we did our preview. But to me, he's still more athlete than he is football player. He's more of a straight line type guy who goes for the big hit. People who were at the game told me that they were concerned because they felt that both Bynum and Davis – uh, we're going for the interceptions. They were going for the big plays rather than making the, the ordinary play rather than securing the tackle, which helped lead to uh, Cal's ultimate loss in the game. Now, another ranked team who fell this past weekend was Virginia. They didn't lose to an unranked team like Cal did, though. They lost to number 10 Notre Dame, the higher-seeded team. And really, the Irish had a dominant ground attack in this one, led by Tony Jones Jr. and that big offensive line. Also, the defense for Notre Dame, eight sacks on Bryce Perkins of Virginia, three of those from Julian Okwara, already halfway to his 2018 total of eight sacks with four this year, really showing some speed off the edge, quickly getting through blocks to the quarterback. Khalid Kareem added two and a half sacks of his own for the Notre Dame defense that really took over this game in the second half. The offensive side of the ball, tight end Cole Komet had four catches for 65 yards after he had nine receptions for 108 yards against Georgia last week. Showed enough speed to get up the seam. Really good hands for Komet. Natural receiving ability. Adjust to balls very nicely when they're in the air. Not really a great athlete in terms of what he's going to do splitting the seam. Shows just enough speed, but not blazing speed for a tight end by any stretch of the imagination. Tony, what did you see from Notre Dame here? Yeah, I mean, defensively, they got some great athletes up front. They've got some terrific athletes on that defensive line. Everyone's going to fall in love with Aquara as we move through the draft process because of his athleticism. I still am a bit concerned about his instincts, but he can rush the edge, which is going to make him a relatively high pick. Khalid Kareem, another guy who, you know, is he a defensive tackle? Is he a defensive man? He's a playmaker, and he's a guy who goes very high. Don't forget about Dalen Hayes, the guy who comes off the, the bench because they've got such depth at that defensive end position. Uh, so, I mean, basically Notre Dame took advantage and exploited what are very average offensive tackles at Virginia, um, which is kind of funny because the week before when they played Georgia – they were having their way with Georgia until Isaiah Wilson came in at the right tackle spot, was suffering with an ankle injury, did not play the two games before the Notre Dame game. And the first half of the game, they had their way with the pretty much off the Georgia right side or off the right side of the Georgia offensive line. Isaiah Wilson came in, and that ended. That's when really Georgia really took off. I think this past weekend against Virginia, there was no Isaiah Wilson at offensive tackle to save the day for, uh, for Virginia. Yeah, and their offense really wasn't there to save the day either. We've talked about the defensive prospects for Virginia on a prior show here, Bryce Hall and Charles Snowden. But offensively, I mean, Bryce Perkins was just very inconsistent against that Notre Dame rush. And again, the talent advantage in the trenches was very much towards the Irish. So it's hard to fully blame Perkins on that, but took too many sacks, too many turnovers, a couple interceptions, fumbles. He is a playmaker at times, but ultimately was just too inconsistent in this game to keep Virginia in it for four quarters. But it's two receivers, Hassiz Dubois and Joe Reed, guys we graded as UDFAs in the preseason. Both have taken steps forward this year. Dubois is the bigger guy at six foot three, showed off his ability to extend for passes in the middle of the field, really excels in contested situations, showed that on his touchdown. Um, nine catches, 143 yards, and a score in this game. Reed also had nine catches for 107 yards and a TD. But he's more of a speedy wide receiver, returner type of guy. Had a big catch early, caught a wide open touchdown pass. Tony. Any real intrigue on this side of the ball for you for the draft? I think uh, Joe Reed, who was also graded as a free agent, priority free agent by scouts, has really taken his game to the next level. And I think that's a guy, he's got a decent build at six foot, one half inch, 210 pounds. He's expected to run the four fours. And you, you look at the fact that he's slowly turning from athlete into receiver. 
if he continues to play the way he does, you got to expect to see him in a postseason game, uh, definitely the Shrine game, possibly the Senior Bowl. And then if he has uh, good workouts prior to the draft, which I expect him to be, I think he's definitely going to hop into the last day of the draft. Now, before we move on to our week six previews here, Tony, last week we discussed USC's Michael Pittman Jr. after he had a massive game against Utah, over 230 receiving yards, couple touchdowns, or I think actually only one touchdown rather. Scouts are moving him up boards, but he's not the only Pac-12 receiver that's improving his draft grade this season, Tony. So take us to Oregon State for a second. Yeah, Isaiah Hodgins, a guy that we spoke about uh, when we did our Oregon State preview because Oregon State really does not have that much talent uh, on the field, although they're playing decent football this year. They're playing competitive football. Hodgins is a guy who I graded as a free agent. He goes about six foot three, 205 pounds. He looks imposing on the field. He makes some incredible receptions. Thus far this year, he's got 33 receptions, six TDs uh, during the team's games, way ahead of last year's pace. There were some people out West who really like him, some scouts who really like him. I still have my concerns about him. Yes, he's big. Yes, he makes a lot of acrobatic type receptions. Yes, he wins out for the contested throw. But I just don't see a guy that's got a lot of quickness, a guy that's got a lot of speed. He shows no burst in his game. Everyone is going back to the film of last week's touchdown grab where he basically stuck his hand out and stabbed the ball out of midair. It was a great catch. But if you look at everything that happened before the catch, slow as molasses getting off the line, didn't run a good route uh, because it doesn't show any quickness. Now, when I look at the guy, I, I think he's a 4-6 guy. People have told me that they think that if he has a good year, he will enter the draft. And then when he goes to the combine, he'll run the low 4-5s. You know, that remains to be seen. Definitely a good pass catcher. I just don't know that he's that much different from the Hakeem Butlers or the Alan Lazars or some of the bigger receivers who won out for contested throws and made a lot of acrobatic receptions on the college level, which doesn't always translate well to the next level, or at least doesn't translate to a top 100 pick or a first or second day pick. And especially if he's going to run around four six, because I mean, we saw a guy like Hakeem Butler who was crazy productive at Iowa state really made a lot of plays, but as you said, a lot of contested situations and he ran about a four five. Low four fives. Yeah. Low four fives. Yeah, so he ends up going in the fourth round, and then you have Isaiah Hodgins, who's a similar type of player. We don't want to you know, blanket all these guys together, but he's going to be a tenth of a second slower. It's really hard to see him making any sort of push for the top 100. You know, and a little note on Hakeem Butler, which I had been uh, saving. Hakeem Butler was on injured reserve uh, now for the uh, Arizona Cardinals, and I was told that really – it was sort of the Arizona Cardinal franchise was kind of happy that they had to put him on injury reserve because he wasn't really doing all that well in camp. He wasn't standing out. So again, it's a situation where you got a bigger receiver who's able to just physically beat down opponents and make a lot of great catches on, on Saturday. That's not going to fly on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, all the camp hype in Arizona was strictly around Keyshawn Johnson, a guy out of Fresno state that we talked about a lot here, the last drafted of their three receivers and the guy who ended up getting the most camp hype. He's getting the most playing time right now. So, you know, it doesn't in the end matter sometimes whether you take a guy in the second round, like Isabella or in the fourth round, like Butler, you have to perform when the pads are coming on and that's, what's going to get you playing time. And in Keyshawn Johnson, a guy who runs good routes, separates from defenders through his route running, you know, does the things well to be successful on Sunday that, you know, Hakeem Butler just doesn't show the ability to do. And that's not, not that I hate Hakeem Butler. It's just a matter of, you know, some guys have the skill set to stand out on Saturday. That just does not project well to Sunday. 
Yeah, and in a lot of cases, the NFL, as we see every year, it's trending more towards guys who can separate with their routes rather than win those contested balls. Enough about that, though. We'll get to our Week 6 previews in just a moment. But before we do, please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch with the show. Now, the first matchup on our mind for this upcoming weekend is Arizona at Colorado. Now, the big news or the big story heading into the game is Wildcats quarterback Khalil Tate is questionable due to an ankle injury and a hamstring injury, missed the UCLA game. But the intrigue here outside of Tate is the Buffalo's offense against the Wildcats defense, specifically wide receiver LaVisca Chenault and quarterback Steven Montez against Arizona corner Jace Whitaker. Now, Whitaker's hamstring and elbow injuries cost him the 2018 season, but has three picks so far this year, showing off the ball skills we talked about for him in our preview. He's played plenty of safety as well in 2019 in kind of that spur role for Arizona. Keeps the action in front of him. His speed was a question for us heading into the season, so it'll be interesting to see where he lines up with Chenault on the other side of the ball. Chenault's also actually questionable with an undisclosed injury, so if he doesn't go, all eyes are really going to be on Montez and what he can do without his star receiver. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people like Whitaker. Whitaker is graded as a, a late-round pick. I have him as a free agent. He's got excellent size. He, he's long at six foot tall. The question about him is his speed, especially his deep speed, which is why he's maybe better off inside the safety at the next level. Reminds me a little bit of Tristan Deku, a guy from Oregon State who was a terrific defensive back with great ball skills, but just did not have the speed for the next level. And it'll be interesting to see because, as we know, you know, Steven Montez, who I think has played relatively well this year. He's cut down on his mistakes. He's a little bit inconsistent, but he hasn't. He's, I think he only has two interceptions uh, this year. Uh, we'll see if, you know, Steven Montez tries to exploit that, but the lack of deep speed, if in fact, LaVisca Chenault does play. And if he doesn't play, you know, again, this is another guy like we talked about with Zach Moss, that, you know, a skill player that if the injuries continue to pile up, you know, that may be a red flag for the next level, but still hopefully the Chenault's on the field. Hopefully Montez is on his game and, and we get to see a good matchup against Jace Whitaker, the cornerback from Arizona, who, you know, could sneak into the last day of the draft. Now, our next matchup was going to be a high-level quarterback showdown before Chase Garbers got hurt, as we talked about earlier on the show. Now, it's just Justin Herbert against the talented Cal Secondary. We mentioned Bynum, Davis, and Hawkins earlier. Should pose a challenge for Herbert, whose numbers this year, they're way up from where they were last year. He's completing 74.4% of his passes, 8.7 yards per attempt, 14 touchdowns, zero interceptions. Now, 10 of those TDs came in throwaway games against uh, you know, a couple of weaker opponents, so we don't want to look too deep into those. His Auburn debut this year wasn't so great. Bounced back a little last week against Stanford, but despite having the highest senior grade entering 2019 that scouts have given out, which we reported several months ago, many now have him behind Jordan Love in addition to Tua Tagovailoa in their quarterback rankings. So we should also obviously watch Evan Weaver on the defensive side of the ball for Cal tackling everything in sight. Is this kind of a game that could be a statement game for Herbert against a talented back seven, Tony? Well, it's also a, a statement game where for, it could be a statement game for Cal with their uh, back seven, especially their secondary that's got to get it uh, back in, into full gear. First thing I got to just got to uh, correct you on, uh, Herbert got one of the highest grades in recent times. He didn't get the highest grade of all time, but he got uh, a high, higher grade than uh, any senior quarterback that's 
come into a senior season, I believe, the last uh, five to ten years. So the grade was pretty significant. It just wasn't the highest of all time. You know, I think this is a big game. We talked about uh, Jalen Hawkins and Ashton Davis before the safeties from Cal. We talked about Evan Weaver, obviously for Herbert. You know, the problem with him is he just can't seem to finish. I mean, that's the difference between him and two with Tagliavoa. I mean, Tagliavoa comes through in the big spot. He comes through in, in major pressure situations, uh, whether it be the SEC title game, whether it be a national championship game where Justin Herbert seems to struggle and can't finish regular season games, as we saw against Auburn doesn't mean he's a bad quarterback. It just means that he just can't seem to come through with a high-pressure situation. What's going to be interesting here is this. Uh, Oregon has one of the more underrated tight ends in the nation, and Jake Breland, a guy who I believe was either a week two or week three riser for me at Pro Football Network. Uh, he's a guy that's got outstanding measurables, six five and a half, two 240 pounds, runs in the four sevens. If you remember last year, one of the reasons Justin Herbert gave for returning to Oregon was that his brother was going to be a true freshman. His brother was a five-star tight end. His brother has done nothing this year. Whereas Jake Breeland uh, has really improved his game, is really starting to produce, and is really starting to turn from an athlete into a football player. Presently, he leads Oregon receivers with 265 yards, five touchdowns, and 18 receptions in four games. You want to see how those Cal safeties, Ashton Davis and Jalen Hawkins, do covering Jake Freeland. I think the other story here is I'm a big fan of Cameron Bynum, the cornerback from Cal. The big story here is does Juwan Johnson of Oregon finally return to the field? Juwan Johnson was a terrific receiver for Penn State in 2017. His game really slid off last year, transferred to Oregon, was expected to do some uh, big things. I had him graded as a sixth, seventh round pick. Scouts had him graded as a seventh round selection. Hasn't played this season because uh, he's been injured. Uh, Coach Mario Cristobal of Oregon said on Monday that he's going to be cautious about the possibility of Johnson playing this weekend due to the lingering effects of his injury. Hopefully we'll see uh, Johnson back on the field. I know that Justin Herbert would like to have him back. It's another target for him to throw to, and it'd be a good matchup against Cameron Bynum, the uh, cornerback from Cal. Absolutely. And we mentioned Justin Herbert not really stepping up in big pressure type of situations. I mean, this game has an 18 point spread on it. So it may not be that game where we're going to see that type of situation for Herbert to thrive in. Maybe Cal keeps this close. Maybe without Chase Garbers, maybe Devin Mobster comes in and is able to keep this game close. I'd be a little surprised. But if this game does stay close, that's exactly what you want to see out of Herbert is him taking control in a game like this where there is secondary talent on the other side of the ball where it is a close game and where overall he can be confident that the other offense probably isn't going to match him at the end of the game. So if you don't see that from Herbert and that situation arises this week, that's kind of a bit of a red flag. Well, they shouldn't match him because without Chase Garbers, you know, it's a big drop off to Modster. Plus the fact is, is Oregon's got some real good defensive prospects. Uh, that they line up. Uh, Jordan Scott, the defensive tackle, big nose tackle, 330-pound player. They've got some good uh, cornerbacks and safeties. Uh, obviously, they got the two linebackers there, Troy Dye and Lamar Winston. So, I, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a game where Cal may have difficulty moving the ball or getting into the end zone. Now, we'll end the show with one of three ranked matchups this week. Michigan State heads to Ohio State. Lots of draft intrigue in this one. We'll start with defensive end Chase Young, who already has eight sacks, leading the FBS right now, really looking like a top five pick. The Spartans' talented offensive line is going to have its hands full with Young. They do have several draftable prospects along the front. The lone day two grade we have is their center, Matt Allen. They'll need to keep Young away. 
from Brian Lewerke if the Spartans hope to move the ball. And their receivers, two guys that we like as later round picks, Daryl Stewart and Cody White, are going to need to get open against these star Ohio State corners. I mean, Damon Arnett and Jeffrey Okuda, they are absolute studs. Both have a good chance to be first round picks in next year's draft if they declare Okuda is still very young. So there's always the chance he goes back to school. But in reality, good luck to Michigan State trying to create offense here against this Ohio State defense. Well, good luck to Brian Lewerke, who I'm not very high on. Some scouts think he's the last day pick. I have him as a free agent. And you just mentioned two uh, cornerbacks from Ohio State, Damon Ornette and Jeffrey Kuda. Don't forget, Sean Wade's a redshirt sophomore. I have him graded as a third-round pick right now. Jordan Fuller, the safety, who played incredibly well in 2017, watched his play fall off last year. He's starting to get it back on track. And, you know, you mentioned Chase Young. Don't forget about the, the Ohio State linebackers. I mean, Turf Borland, uh, Malik Harrison, who I think is going to be a middle-round pick. Uh, Baron Browning is a terrific linebacker. Can't even get on the field because they've got so much talent on there. Pete Werner, the other outside linebacker. Uh, it's it's going to be tough sledding for uh, the Michigan State offense. I do like their receivers. I especially like Daryl Stewart. Uh, I like him as a guy who can line up in the slot, line up out on the flanks. A uh, guy who can be used to run reverses, be used as a return specialist, comes up with the big reception during the game's important moments. We'll see if Lewerke's got time to throw the ball. Yeah, I mean, this Ohio State defense, as you mentioned, is absolutely loaded. It's something we're really used to seeing from them, but this year I think especially so. If we flip it to the other side of the ball, we're going to really want to watch running back J.K. Dobbins against this top-notch Michigan State run defense. Shut down Eno Benjamin several weeks ago in a game we discussed on the show. Dobbins, 92 carries this year, 654 yards, and five touchdowns, second in the FBS in rushing. So he's having a really, really nice season now that he has a little bit more of the backfield share with Mike Weber gone to the NFL. Michigan State, though, fourth in team rushing defense, led by linebacker Joe Bocci and a bunch of late-round defensive linemen. Tony, can Dobbins stay hot here? Uh, remains to be seen. I mean, they've got some decent players on the Ohio State uh, offensive line. They're not as dominant as they've been in the past. I, I like J.K. Dobbins. I mean, he's just a complete back. He's a, you talked about his ball carrying. He's a solid pass catcher out of the backfield. I did a show for an Ohio State radio station a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned how against, uh, against Cincinnati late in the game when Ohio State was up by 28 points, it was a quarterback run, quarterback option, and J.K. Dobbins gets out despite the fact his team is up by four touchdowns and just lays out the linebacker and opens up the running lane for Justin Fields. So that tells you what kind of player Dobbins is. And, and you're right. They're going to be up against it because there is a lot of talent on that uh, Michigan State front seven. You mentioned Joe Bocci. Antoine Simmons, the other linebacker, he's a guy who I have graded as a fifth-round pick. You look at that defensive line. A lot of people like Raekwon Williams as a middle-round pick. Kenny Willekes is graded anywhere from the third round to the sixth round. I like him as a college defensive end. I think he's a very intense guy. I just don't think he's got the athleticism that translates well to the next level. Naquan Jones, a redshirt junior who some scouts think could eventually develop into a third-round uh, type of uh, prospect. And, and Jacob Panasiuk who really is not mentioned by a lot of people. I do have him graded uh, as a potential uh, late rounder. He's a guy who consistently makes plays on a football, plays with his head, with his heart. Uh, it's going to be a good battle up front between Ohio State offense and the uh, Michigan State defensive front seven. A lot of NFL talent there. 
Absolutely. And I mean, talking about Dobbins, as you said, he's a three down back. He doesn't wow you with athleticism or wow you with power, but he does everything very well. He's just a solid all around player with good rushing instincts, just a guy that you want on your football team. Maybe he's not a first round type caliber running back, but he's definitely a guy that you want and a guy that can be a future starter in the NFL. The question, too, is whether a lot of his rushing numbers are kind of improved by the fact that he's now playing with Justin Fields rather than Dwayne Haskins. And that's going to open up some running lanes. Justin Fields is obviously a dual threat. He's made a lot of big plays, some inconsistency, too, but just a guy who's really shown the ability to make big plays, get the ball down the field. And now there's several different aspects of the Ohio State offense with Justin Fields having the ball in his hands that defenses have to worry about that could possibly open up some lanes for Dobbins in this matchup. Well, I think his rushing numbers may take a hit because Dwayne Haskins really wasn't a running quarterback, but he was splitting time with Mike Weber uh, a year ago. Listen, I think that Dobbins, and I know I go against the grain with a lot of people here, but I think Dobbins can be a first rounder because he's a terrific running back who does everything else. Well, a lot of attention to detail there. And that's it for the 89th episode of the draft analysts presented by the believe sports podcast network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. And as always, head over to profootballnetwork.com where you can now find everything you once found at draftanalyst.com, including Tony's Saturday Live blog, weekly risers and sliders, and a weekly mailbag. For Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. See you next week.